day for us as Christians. Yes, for many of us, uh, uh, it is Halloween. I've actually seen further confirmation of that in some of the, uh, some of the interesting costumes that I've, uh, that I've seen around. Um, but also, believe it or not, Halloween is also, uh, also means the day before all, the eve before all saints. So, it, so there is, despite all the other stuff that's associated with it, uh, there is something of a Christ, there, there was something of a Christian element to that. That's for another discussion, though. And certainly it was on the day of all saints that Martin Luther did nail the 95 theses upon the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in 1517. So with that said, the passages of Scripture I want us to look at briefly are Romans 1.17 and Romans 3.21-28. Very well known to us, but certainly play very prominently in what we're going to be discussing in the next few moments here. Romans 1.17. And let me begin with verse 16 just to establish the context. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then turn over to Romans 3, verses, 1 through tw verses 21 through 28. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a, the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith from works, from the works of the law. The righteousness of God. That is a potent phrase. And it is this very potent phrase from chapter 1 of Paul's epistle to the Romans that perplexed a young professor of Bible, Martin Luther, whose entire life up until this point in some way or another was spent responding to perceptions of this concept, this idea of what the righteousness of God is. Confrontation by this righteousness of God began on the day of Martin's birth on November 10th, 1483 in the town of Eisleben, Germany. 
baptized about uh, eight days after his birth. Luther was somewhat introduced uh, to this concept through the severe but loving upbringing by his parents. Uh, Hans and Marguerite Luther. Hans, a miner, had worked very hard uh, to the point where he eventually owned six mines and was thus in a position to provide the best education possible for his very bright young son. Now with this in mind, Hans sent young Martin to the best secondary schools uh, in that part of Germany, which was Saxony, over in the, over in the eastern part uh, of that country. Now, young Luther's secondary education was further reinforced uh, by the righteousness of God through the strict discipline of his teachers and the uh, Latin language uh, that he studied. And, um, and, there, and by the way, this, um, there, are some there are some people today for whom uh, Latin is still something of an ordeal to study. As, um, and I won't go into details as that, but I do know that there are certain young people for whom even today Latin is something of an ordeal. So there is some continuity in that respect. Now specifically, while he learned the rudiments of Latin grammar, Luther was also being taught the traditional prayers and the liturgy of the medieval church. Now what occurred in the classroom would be especially highlighted uh, by the worship in the church, not just with respect to participation in the liturgy or the, or the order of service, but also by listening to sermons and looking at some rather graphic art, all of which stressed the final judgment, uh, like this portrayal here, which Luther would have seen on a regular basis. Here we see, Je here we see uh, Jesus... Uh, coming, sitting upon a throne, exacting judgment. Vindicating the saints, bringing the saints to heaven, and casting the wicked into hell. And this would have been a constant thing that a young Luther or anybody from that period would have seen walking into any one of the churches during this period. Now at this point, we need to define how the righteousness of God was understood in the medieval church in which Luther, as we can see here, was very much a part. Here, the righteousness of God was understood as the active, retributive, punishing essential righteousness, the righteousness of the law, which God demands of his human creation. And this is the righteousness which would be ultimately executed at the final judgment. It's a vengeful righteousness. Do what the law says or you will be damned. And so the righteousness of God is, was God's vengeance taken upon sinners for not keeping his law. Now, meaning the demands of this righteousness was the way in which one would stand on that foreboding and dreadful day. Obtaining salvation from this day of wrathful vengeance was the goal towards which all human endeavor 
and activity was directed. And the medieval church, through the school, through the liturgy of the church, with its prayers, and essentially its sacraments, provided the means of this salvation. And this concern for what we call in theology uh, justification or simply what we might call the doctrine of salvation led to multiple views of justification within the medieval church. Now at this point it's important for us to stress here that there was really no official doctrine of justification in the medieval church at this time. There were many, 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 many different views of justification. By justification, we mean the whole doctrine of how one is made right with God. And so because there was really no one singular view, there were many, many different views that also created confusion. And then you also factor into this the sacramental system of the church. Remember, penance, it, was one of the seven sacraments. And that consisted of contrition, in other words, being sorrowful for one's sin, confession to a priest, and then a work of satisfaction uh, that the priest would assign to the penitent as a condition for that penance. So there's a lot more we could say about that, but that'll have to su suffice because of time. So, when, you when we factor all that into consideration, we could see why, although the gospel was present in the medieval church, it would be fair to say that it was greatly, greatly obscured by all of these other things. Now, so in the midst of all these views, one was increasingly becoming dominant, and this is the view that Luther will encounter, and in which he will be thoroughly educated uh, in his university studies. <clears throat> now when Luther completed his secondary education, he matriculated at the University of Erfurt in 1501. Now the University of Erfurt at this time was probably the most prestigious university in Germany. Uh, we might say it was the Harvard of Germany at this time. Uh, there, Luther finished a three-year program in one year. He finished, a, he finished a bachelor's degree, which in those days would have been about three years. He finished it all in one year. Uh, graduating in 1502. And then he completed his MA degree in 1505. Now, during this period of study at Erfurt, Luther learned a view of justification That, went, that was expressed in this saying. Do what in you lies. Do what in you lies. Now according to this view of justification, God could do whatever he wants. Therefore, he could redeem humanity in any way that he wanted. And it just so happens that he ordained this way of doing so. God tells human beings to do the very best that they can and exerting themselves and doing good. And if they make even the slightest effort towards this end, unaided by grace, by virtue of their free will, then God will meet them halfway and give them grace. Although this initial effort, as I said, in and of itself can't merit anything, God will nevertheless grant grace for such an effort. 
However, once one receives this grace for making the effort to do good, then this grace will enable a person to perform deeds that are genuinely meritorious and therefore would actually obligate God to reward them with salvation. Now, although, as we said, this was uh, one of many views of justification in the late medieval church, it was the one that was becoming dominant. And the University of Erfurt was one of the main centers for this particular view of salvation. So Luther, like, like any adherent uh, to this view of salvation, is going to exert every effort to merit this grace of God, which will ultimately lead to salvation, uh, by which then the righteousness of God will have been satisfied. This is the view in which Luther was educated, and the one that he held, and the one according to which he tried to live as he applied himself to receiving all of the sacraments of the church and following all of its precepts. Now, when Luther completed his master's degree, he obeyed his father's wishes and began law school at the University of Erfurt. Now, accompanying the notion of the righteousness of God and the doctrine of salvation in which Luther was taught was an acute awareness of the certainty of death. And this certainty of death was heightened by the lasting memory of the bubonic plague, which decimated about a third of the population of Europe back in the 14th century, and the high mortality rate in Luther's own day. Death was just around the corner and could strike anyone, anywhere, anytime, regardless of age or station. And with death always following so close behind, one better best be preparing himself or herself by endeavoring to meet the requirements of God's uncompromising righteousness by availing oneself of all the offers of the church by way of the sacraments and so forth. Now, while in law school, Luther encountered death on three occasions. Uh, the first was when his best friend in law school died. The second occurred when the young law student was walking one day uh, and tripped over his dagger, uh, cutting a vein whereby he almost bled to death. The third encounter is probably the best known. It took place in the summer of uh, 1505. And after a visit with his parents, Luther began his journey back to Erfurt, which required him to travel through some very thick and dark forests. Now, although highly educated, Luther's awareness of the certainty of death was further punctuated by belief in the existence of demons, witches, goblins, and other malevolent creatures hiding about in the woods, ready to pounce on an unsuspecting traveler and bolt him immediately into hell. Now, as he traversed uh, deeper and deeper into the forest, the clouds became thicker and thicker until Thunder clashes, and suddenly a lightning bolt strikes Luther to the ground, and fearing for his very life, he cries out to his patron saint, who was the patron saint of minors, saying, help me, Saint Anne, I will become a monk. Now, given what we've already examined at this point, uh, this promise to become a monk was not a sudden and rash decision on the part of a frightened Luther. Rather, it, this was an option he was apparently considering for quite some time, uh, possibly even before entering law school. Also, what we see here 
would have been the likely action of many people like Luther living in the late Middle Ages. This would have been a very, very common thing. This was not unique to Luther. This would have been the case with many people in his position trying to achieve salvation as part of the late medieval church. Now the monastic vocation, wherein one dedicated himself or herself solely to prayer and worship to God and community, was regarded really as the way par excellence to heaven. This was considered the surest way to salvation uh, for anyone like Luther who was acutely concerned for the eventual salvation of his soul. Now in keeping with the view of justification that he was taught, the monastic life would be the surest means of exerting the effort necessary to receive God's grace, thereby performing truly meritorious works, satisfying the righteousness of God, and resulting in salvation. It was thus with the salvation of his soul in mind that Luther withdrew from law school, angering his father considerably, and entered the Augustinian monastery in July of 1505. After completing the required one year as a novice, Luther took his final vows of, of poverty, chastity, and obedience. He was now officially a monk. Now as a monk, Luther was most diligent, observing everything required of him in his endeavor to have peace with God. Yet his troubled conscience and spirit became even more so, even as he rose up in the order. The righteousness of God became increasingly, for Luther, a source of unspeakable terror. And this is most vividly illustrated by the time in which uh, he said his first Mass. Which was in 1507. In 1507, Luther was ordained a priest, and in May of that year, he said his first Mass. And after the alleged phenomenon of transubstantiation had taken place, and remember what this is, this is when the priest uh, pronounces the words of institution, uh, quoting Christ, this is take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood, and so forth, at which point the substance of the bread and wine would change into the actual body and blood of Christ. Luther then, Luther, keeping this in mind, trembled at the very thought of handling God himself in the transubstantiated host. Now he recovered momentarily so that he could finish the Mass. Now this incident was one of many excruciating spiritual struggles which Luther experienced. The fear-motivated piety of his youth uh, was reinforced by the monastic demands of perfection. The words of Christ, as he understood them, rang clearly in his consciousness, striking even more terror. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.48 Now overwhelmed by the thought of what it means as a sinner to stand in the presence of a righteous God, Luther was driven to despair. The theology of justification or salvation, which he had been taught, emphasized the power of the human will and counseled him to do the very best that was in him and God would not withhold his grace. But how could he be sure that he had done enough works to satisfy God's demand for righteousness? 
How could he find a merciful God? Now, during his spiritual ordeals, uh, Luther became friends with the vicar general of the Augustinian order. His name was Johann Stoppitz. That's his picture up here. Uh, Stoppitz was Luther's confessor. He was his friend. He was his counselor. In our context here at NBC, we might even call him his discipler. As Stoppitz became intimately acquainted with Luther's struggles, he came up with a solution. He would assign Luther some very intellectually engaging tasks. Uh, Stoppitz arranged for Luther to be transferred to the little city of Wittenberg, where he would pastor a church, where he would, where he would preach uh, several times a day, several times a week. He would also teach at the newly founded University of Wittenberg and work on his doctorate. All these activities had one thing in common. All of them would force Luther to be engaged directly with the Bible. Stoppitz saw that the key to Luther's crises was the Word of God. So as Luther engaged in these tasks, he delved more and more deeply into the Scriptures. And eventually, he finished his doctorate in 1512 and was officially installed a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg. Now, as a professor, Luther prepared and delivered lectures on individual books of the Bible. And in this role, he employed the new methods of biblical exegesis that were being devised over the course of the last century, which involved reading biblical texts according to their original language, immediate context, authorial intent, and historical context while consulting the interpretive comments of such important ancient biblical interpreters like Augustine, while oftentimes disagreeing with these interpreters. Now, one such book on which he lectured was the Book of Romans. And he lectured on the Book of Romans uh, in the year, from 1515 to 1516. And from Paul, Luther learned the depth of sin and the magnitude of God's forgiving grace. It was while studying intently the Book of Romans that Luther examined intently this phrase, the righteousness of God. That phrase that had tormented him throughout his entire life up to this point. While granting that the righteousness of God is indeed an active righteousness, or one, as we mentioned before, that is uh, a retributing, retributive and punishing. However, from his close and careful study of the text in relation to other passages in Romans, Luther saw that this was not the sense in which Paul was referring to the righteousness of God. But when he compared Romans 1 to passages like Romans 3, 21 through 28, as well as uh, chapters 4 and 5, the righteousness of God was one that was passive. In other words, a righteousness that is imputed, or in other words, freely given by God himself through Christ to sinners and received by faith alone. Now this matter of faith, or what we would call here sola fide, is quite important given the late medieval context in which Luther was working. See, medieval theologians recognize multiple categories of faith. 
one of which was just intellectual assent. Luther, on the other hand, in interpreting Paul, points out that the faith which receives Christ's righteousness as one's own is trust that Christ fulfilled the entire law on the sinner's behalf and died for his or her sins in their place, all on the basis of God's word, or what we would call sola scriptura. Also, whereas the doctrine of justification, which Luther had been taught heavily, stressed the freedom of the human will to merit God's grace, Luther understood on the basis of his exegetical study of Romans that the human will cannot exert itself towards good because of its enslavement to sin and can only be freed by the supernatural power of God's grace, which produces the faith with which to receive the righteousness of Christ as one's own. This is what we call sola gratia, or grace alone. In fact, many years later, Luther wrote on this in what he considered his most important work, entitled, The Bondage of the Will. 1525. Now, it's important to stress here that this evangelical breakthrough of Luther's, as we often call it, uh, did not come all at once. But rather, it was a gradual process resulting from careful, deliberate, exegetical study of the scriptures as a professor of Bible, and certainly one that was led by the Holy Spirit. However, this was by no means merely a dispassionate academic exercise for Luther because he had vested in this endeavor nothing less than the very salvation of his soul. Here is an example from Luther's lectures on Romans where he deals with the subject of the righteousness of God while commenting on chapter 3, verse 25. I want you to see some of this exegesis for yourself. Whom God put forward... Established now or ordained from eternity as a propitiation, rather, or rather a place of propitiation, which alone he will to be satisfied. By faith, our place of propitiation is not won by our merits, but in his, Christ's blood, that is, in his suffering, whereby he made satisfaction and merited propitiation for those who believe in him. This was to show his righteousness. In other words, to show that his righteousness alone makes men righteous. Now, throughout the exposition, he makes references to uh, the great early church interpreter, Augustine. Now, from these exegetical or expositional observations, Luther concluded that the Bible, as God's word alone, consists of commands and promises, the promises being all part of the gospel. Faith in the gospel, the good news that Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf, both imperfectly obeying it and paying the penalties of our violation of it, and rising from the dead, fulfills all of the commandments. Every thou shalt, every thou shalt not. The promises of the gospel fulfill all of God's commands. And don't let any of us in this room forget that fact because that is the linchpin of the entire gospel. Luther states this beautifully in one of his best-known works, The Freedom of the Christian. Faith alone 
is the righteousness of a Christian and the fulfilling of all the commandments. Sola fide. At, as this understanding of the gospel continued to develop and mature, Luther, by means of this, sought to reform the existing church of its theological errors and practical abuses, as initially seen in his nailing of the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church uh, in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, which was a series of topics to be debated at the university on the abuses of indulgences. There's a whole other, there's a lot more that we could say about that, but we'll have to save that for another time. And as we know, these indulgences were being sold near Wittenberg with the sanction of the church. Now, promising the forgiveness of all sins upon purchase, these indulgences, Luther argued, violated the traditional doctrine of penance, which at this time he, was sti he still very strongly held to, and the very substance of the gospel. The controversy provoked by the 95 Theses brought Luther into direct conflict with the highest authorities of church and state, leading eventually to his appearance before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Arms. where he was asked to recant all that he had taught and written to the point to which he humbly and yet triumphantly responded. Since then your serene majesty and lordship seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, neither horn nor tooth, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have, quoted, I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Although this stand placed Luther under imperial ban, making him an outlaw, meaning that he could be killed by anyone, anywhere, anytime on sight. He was under this threat for the rest of his life. In the meantime, he was instrumental in the providence of God in starting a movement which revived the gospel and spread throughout Europe and eventually across the Atlantic to our shores. As the gospel, even in our own day, is still in danger of being obscured. We once again look upon the Reformation as still significant more than ever because it impresses upon us the following lessons for the church today. And it begins right here in Montana Bible College where we are learning to be disciples on the basis of the Word of God which we, to which we devote all these hours every single day studying and meditating upon. And here they are. Here are the lessons for us. There has and continues to be a need to preserve the gospel. Secondly, the need to, there's a need to avoid legalism and license. The doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone, by the way, is still under attack. There are many, there are, even among so-called evangelicals, there are new efforts to redefine justification, just as there are efforts to redefine inerrancy, just as there are efforts to really, to really redefine, if not dismiss, the authority of Scripture. 
Thirdly, the preservation of the gospel comes about by God's grace and the enabling of the Spirit through careful, historically informed exegesis. And that is what we teach here. That is what we are stressing here. It's the importance of studying the scriptures by way of the illumination of the Holy Spirit by employing what we call historical, grammatical, careful exegesis. Next, and I believe finally, study of Scripture does not occur in a vacuum, but within the community of believers, including those who have lived before us. Much of our understanding of Scripture and doctrine comes to us from insights we've inherited from those before us, in our case, one of whom was Martin Luther. Now, I thought I would close our time here this morning with a reflection of Luther's years later after his rediscovery of the gospel. And I pray that this would be our reflection upon the gospel as well. I pondered night and day until I understood the connection between the righteousness of God and the sentence, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is the righteousness by which through grace and pure mercy, God justifies us through faith. Immediately, I felt that I had been reborn and that I had passed through wide open doors into paradise. And if we understand the gospel and believe the gospel, then we too, because of the Spirit of God, having applied that to our hearts and giving us the faith with which to believe, have also entered through these wide open gates of paradise. And let that be our, let the gospel be our precious treasure and our precious deposit, beginning here amongst ourselves and going forward. Let's pray. Father God, we praise and we thank you that you have, that you preserved the gospel and that you, you, and that even though in times, even in our own day, when it is obscured by human regulations, by foreign human teachings. Yet, Father, in your good providence, you raise up people, just as you did, at the, just as you did in the 16th century with Martin Luther, to revive the clarity of the gospel and, to, and from there issuing a spiritual movement which revived your church. And Lord, we ask that in this day, you would use us in this room. You would use us here in Montana Bible College to also preserve, protect, and proclaim the precious deposit of the gospel. Your promise, your yes to us, that you have freely accepted us in your sight on account of your Son, who died for us and rose again for us and whose righteousness is truly ours by a faith that you have sovereignly and lovingly given us by your Spirit. In Christ's name, who is our righteousness, we do pray. Amen.